you to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, just a quick reminder, Paul is uh, writing to these churches because they've been infected with a, a false teaching that uh, is calling them away from pure gospel to a diluted uh, false gospel of, of, of grace plus work, of, of, of faith plus merit. That uh, you need to be not only a believer in Jesus, but you need to be a Jew. You need to come under the, uh, all, the, all the law, civil and ceremonial and moral law of Moses. All the law has to um, now be applied to Gentile Christians in order to be truly saved. And Paul is fighting against this with everything that he has. And, uh, and this morning, just laying out the glory of what it means to be a New Testament Christian and um, so we'll be looking at that this morning. Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to be picking up at uh, verse 23. Uh, just notice that Paul has, uh, it, it, the text divides up into uh, verse 23, now before faith came, and then 25, but now that faith has come. So he's describing two epochs here, two eras, and uh, we'll look at that this morning. So let's pick it up, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through him, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let's ask the Lord to bless. God in heaven, we do come now uh, believing that you sent the Holy Spirit to teach us, to lead us and guide us in your truth. And we trust that your spirit will do that now as, as we open your word. Teach us what we need to know. Lord, mold our hearts with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, boys and girls, when I was uh, a little boy, I remember my mother reading to me a, uh, a book entitled, Are You My Mother? Uh, I don't know if, um, if your parents have read that book to you. If not, uh, ask them to do it. It's a very good book. Are You My Mother? And uh, it's a story about a little uh, baby bird that uh, pops out of the shell and, um, while his mother is away looking for food. And so this little baby bird pops out and there's no mother around. And so he decides to go looking for her. So he hops out of the nest and he, since he can't fly yet, he's just walking around the, the community and he comes across a little kitten. And he says, are you my mother? And the kitten's not his mother. And then he finds a hen and he asks a hen and a dog and a cow uh, he even asked a, a, a boat and an airplane flying, um, are you my mother? Of course, they don't answer. Uh, none, of these, uh, none of these things are his mother. And I don't want to give away the ending, uh, but you can imagine how badly that little bird wanted to find its mother because he needed a mother. He needed a mother to provide food and shelter and protection. And he needed a mother to uh, teach him, in a sense, who he was. What does it mean to be a, a little bird in this great big world? And, and uh, how do you live in this world? Without a mother, that little bird was as lost as you can possibly be. And because he did not know his mother's identity, in some deep sense, he didn't know his own identity, didn't know who he was. Well, um, we live in a world full of people who uh, are profoundly lost in very similar ways. 
Lost not just spiritually in that they're not saved, but lost, maybe we could say psychically. They don't, they don't really understand who they are. They don't understand why they're here. They don't understand their purpose. They don't understand their place. They don't have a sense of, of a family that gives them identity. They don't, um, they don't have the um, a, a, a overarching meta-narrative, the, the, the grand story of things where in, that would give them their bearings in this world. And it's all because they don't know who their father is. They don't know God, the God who created them, the God who created this whole world, the God who has fashioned them and purposed them. They don't know him. And so they're as lost as they could possibly be. They don't know who they are, why they're here, or what they are for. And this is in large part what the, uh, the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that not only that uh, our sins are forgiven, but the, the, that's just an, uh, a means to the end. Uh, God forgives our sins so that he can welcome us as children, so that we can have, be reconciled to him and have relationship and fellowship with him, uh, that we can have a new identity. We can discover who we are and why we're here and what we are for. We can, we, can have a, we can know that we have a Father who loves us and who protects us. And we have a family that, uh, that helps us understand our place in the world. And we have this incredible overarching meta-narrative of redemption that helps us to live a full life and enjoy eternal life. And so the, the gospel this morning is, uh, Paul is hammering down on this wonderful truth that through Christ, we've entered a new epoch, a new era. Uh, that we have become sons of God. God himself is our father. The redemption story is an adoption story. A Christian is someone who is able to say that God himself, God is my father in heaven. I am a son of the most high God. It's an unbelievably magnificent thing to be a Christian. And we're going to be unpacking that a bit today, this morning. As I said, as we read the text, Paul divides the text into two parts, life before Christ and life after Christ. Uh, before faith came, and but now that faith has come. And so we're going to just begin by looking at what was life like before faith came, before Christ came. And he outlines not only the history of the world, but the biography of every Christian. We all have a before and an after before faith came, came means before Jesus came, before the gospel was fully revealed in all of its glory. Uh, the history of the whole world can be summarized that way, can it? Uh, before Christ and after Christ. Uh, the, the time of before faith, the time of the law specifically, Paul is, is speaking, and the time of faith. Uh, there, we, we have the privilege of living in this in this uh, but now, this glorious new epoch, new era. But Paul wants us to really grasp, in order to see the wonder of what it means to be a New Testament Christian, he's going to explain, just remind us again, to remind the Galatians uh, Christians what life was like before Christ, what life was like before uh, faith came. And he uses two analogies to do that, the analogy of prison and a tutelage, a, um, a pedagogos is the Greek word. Um, first of all, a prison. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Um, he's re referencing uh, the, uh, just the very real um, world of Roman imprisonment, where you would have guards stationed there. You maybe would be chained, often chained to the guard, 
as, uh, as your imprisonment, and um, they would be armed, and there's no possibility of escaping them. And Paul is saying that's what, um, that was our experience, that was the human experience before faith came. We were held captive under the law. That means that the commands of God stood as military guards over our life. And we were inexorably chained to those commands and to the guilt for failing to keep them. The law says thou shalt not, and yet we did. And we did countless thousands of times. And the guilt of those violations, the law says, the soul that sins shall surely die. That's the sentence of the law. And so we were chained then to the, uh, to the guilt of our sin and the sentence of our sin. And we could not possibly escape the guilt or the sentence. We're, we're living, waiting to be handed over to our doom. And he uses this strong language, held captive, imprisoned, to show us truly how hopeless and helpless we are before the holy law of God. There's no, there's no chance of escaping. Uh, people always think there's got to be a way. Uh, there is no way of escaping the reality of your guilt and the reality of the sentence of God's holy law apart from faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul wants us to remember what it was like before Christ came, before faith came. He also uses the illustration of a tutelage. This would be uh, a guardian is the word here, verse 24. The law was guardian until Christ came. Uh, We're used to um, thinking of the law as a schoolmaster. That's not not really a a very accurate translation of the word. Um, A schoolmaster is someone who teaches children. This, uh, This is not that person. A Pythagogos, well, let me read from F.F. Bruce. The Pythagogos was the personal slave attendant who accompanied the freeborn boy wherever he went from the time he left his nurse's care. It was his duty to teach the boy good manners with the use of the birch if necessary, to take him to school, to wait for him there, then take him home and test his memory by making him recite the lessons he had learned. The primary purpose of the pedagogos, the tutor, was discipline. And so ancient pictures depicting uh, these figures, they would always have a a stick in their hand. Uh, That's what they were known for. That's what they did. They ruled with force. Uh, They made sure that you knew the rules, boys and girls, and that you were keeping the the rules, and they had uh, had an an enhancement, something to, to uh, to motivate you to keep the rules in the punishing rod. And Paul says that's what life was like before faith came. Life was about rules and discipline and and punishment. That's what the law prescribes. Uh, If if, if you remember, the law of Moses is full of rules and regulations, uh, touching every area of your life as a Jew. So it, it, um, it, it has rules concerning what kind of food you can eat and what kind of food you can't eat. It has, it has rules about um, what kind of clothes you can wear, what kind of clothes you can't wear. It rules about um, sacrifices that need to be offered and feasts that need to be observed and rituals that need to be performed. And um, there's, there's rules touching how you work and, and where you live. There's also who you can marry. Rules and rules and rules. And Paul says that we are, uh, the law then was our guardian. It was our disciplinarian. And so what that means then is that the gospel comes to people who are imprisoned and under the, uh, the weight 
of the law as disciplinarian. People who are helplessly chained to their guilt. They cannot escape the sentence um, that they deserve that the law prescribes. And they are constantly under then these rules and regulations which uh, can point the way to righteousness but cannot make them righteous. Just continually reminds them of their guilt, reminds them of their failure. Unfortunately, we sometimes turn the gospel into that. And, and people come to church Sunday after Sunday, and we remind them, right, as pastors, our job is to remind you uh, you're failing. Uh, you're failing. You're, you're failing a lot. Uh, you need to, that, right? It can easily become that. Well, that's a, that's a dereliction of duty for, for gospel preachers. The law says we're failing. We need to be reminded we're failing, but that, that's before faith came. That's the reality of that life. And so the gospel then comes to people who are under this, this captivity, this imprisonment, and under this discipline. And Paul says there's a new era, but now. But now. Uh, it's some of, of Paul's favorite phrases, uh, but now. Um, something new has happened. God has invaded the world with a better, a better message. Uh, but now that faith has come. So when Jesus Christ came into the world, he brought with him a new era a new age, a new epoch, a new reality for all those who would believe in him. He, he brought with him an age of faith, an age of grace, an age of gospel. But most significantly, it is an age of Christ Jesus. So if you, if you notice these following verses, 26 through 29, Paul mentions Christ, 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 Christ. In Christ you are all sons of God, 26. You've been baptized into Christ and you've put on Christ verse 27. You are all one in Christ, verse 28. If you are Christ, verse 29. This new age is defined by the person of, of Jesus Christ, and specifically, it's defined by union with Jesus Christ. To enter into this new age, you need to enter into Christ, and Christ needs to enter into you. If you're dead to Christ, then you are not in the new age, the new epoch. But, but by union with Christ... Everything changes. And Paul specifically here mentions three, three things, three very important things. Uh, your status changes. You get a new status and a new family and a new destiny. A new status, new family, and a new destiny. And let's look at that together. A new status, verse 25 through 27. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Right? If you were a young boy and you had this guardian hanging around all the time and disciplining you every time you made a mistake, it would be a good day when he got retired uh, or when you, miss, uh, you had your, your, uh, your ceremony where you become an adult when you're 14, 15, 16, somewhere there, and, uh, and he's, you're done with him. And Paul says, um, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. One of the most important and most often neglected categories of the gospel reality is the category of status. We don't tend to think in terms of status, not very much. If um, maybe, you know, single or married, um, child or adult, but that's about it. Um, we're sort of a status-less society. Well, the, the, the ancient world was, was uh, defined by status. 
Uh, we don't self-identify in terms of status. In the ancient world, that defined everything meaningful about you. So um, status was essential. You were either a Roman citizen or you were not. And that, was, that had all sorts of ramifications for your life. Paul was a Roman citizen, and so he had rights and privileges that everyone who was not a Roman citizen did not have. You were either a free man or a slave or servant. And again, that had all sorts of ramifications. That dictated how you, how you experienced life. You were a man or a woman, and that had profound ramifications for how you experienced life. You were a child or an adult. All the rights and privileges of society, such as the right uh, to vote, the right to own property, the right to receive an inheritance, uh, all of those things, the right to a fair trial, were determined by your status. Status was everything. Well, in, in, in verses 25-27, Paul explains that by faith in Jesus Christ, we have gained the highest possible status, the most, that, that comes with the most glorious privileges imaginable for sentient beings. Angels do not enjoy the status of the children of God. There, there's, there's nothing above this status for those whom God has created. Phil Riken says, there is no higher status a human being can ever achieve than to be called a son of the Most High God. To be a son of God means that all the rights and privileges that belong to the household of God, the family of God, it's all yours. All the privileges of heaven are yours. So you have the right as a son of God to take shelter in, under the, the protection of your heavenly father. You have a right to say, Abba, Father, and, and, and a right to expect that your father in heaven will hear you and will protect you. You have the right to boldly approach him at any time with your request. You have the confident assurance that you are eternally loved because God the father loves his precious children. You're the apple of his eye. You have the confident knowledge that you have an inheritance, that God your Father is vastly wealthy, and He has promised you glory and riches and honor in His presence in a new heaven and a new earth where everything is made new. That is yours by virtue of your sonship. And if you are not a son of God by faith in Jesus Christ, then these things are not yours. But Paul wants us to understand... The, the, the glory, the privilege that belongs to us. And all of these privileges come by faith. Not by merit, not by work, not by performance, but by faith. The Apostle John writes in John chapter 1 that Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not. But to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. That is what has happened to you when you became a Christian. That Jesus gave you this status of child of God, a son of God. This is, this is at the, just at the heart of the glory of what it means to be a Christian. 
that Jesus has brought us out of the lost alienation and captivity of our former life, our life under the law. And Jesus has brought us into the freedom and the rights and the privilege and prestige, the glory of sonship. That's our new status. Now some of you might be thinking, well, Paul should have said sons and daughters of God. Um, but, but that would miss the point, particularly in uh, the first century. You see, because in Roman times, daughters did not receive privileges. They didn't receive rights. They couldn't inherit. They could not own property. They couldn't vote. They never gained sonship status. But in Christ Jesus, every man and every woman receives sonship status no difference we all receive the privilege of being the children of God and inheriting uh, all that God has for us we we all have equal right to all the privileges that come with sonship status so regardless of your status in human society in Christ we all receive the same glorified status in heaven's society And that's the essence of what Christ has done for us. The point of redemption is to make us sons of God, to make us heirs according to the promise. Now, verse 27 here, um, it it really does deserve a sermon all by itself, um, where Paul says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Just, I, I don't have time for a whole sermon on this verse this morning. Just very quickly, this is a reference to the toga virilla ceremony of, uh, of the Roman world where a, a boy who's coming from a boyhood to adulthood goes, there's a ceremony that says, okay, there's a break, you were a child, now you're adult. And it's a toga virilla ceremony, which means that uh, you take on the toga, the clothing of an adult, and you put aside the clothing of your childhood. And Paul is saying that in Christ, we put on the clothing of sonship, that we've been clothed with Christ, and that is signified by baptism. There's a ceremony, there's something that we can point to and say, I was baptized, and that baptism is the outward sign of an inward reality that I am clothed with Christ by faith. And so um, the essence of baptism, the meaning of baptism is union with Jesus Christ. And by virtue of that union, all the status of sonship belongs to us. And as I said, it's the highest privilege that God could ever give you. There's there's nothing higher. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. We have a new status in Christ, by faith. Secondly, we have a new family, a new community. Verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So we not only gain a heavenly father, we gain a whole family. If you are an adoptive child, uh, just imagine you're a five-year-old and all your life, all you've known is the orphanage. And uh, you come into a, a home, and you're adopted, and you, and you not only gain parents, but you get brothers and sisters. Um, and, and you sense deep in your soul, this is how it, it's, it's supposed to be. I uh, was reading a, an article a couple of weeks ago that just, um, just touched my heart. Uh, a man was just talking about how he and his wife uh, were, were working with a local inner city school, and, and um, they had, for some reason, they had uh, two little girls, sisters, into their home, and um, 
These girls came, just came from wreckage in their home situation. And, uh, and the, the, the girls were about nine and seven, and the girls were walking around the living room, and, and uh, the older girl noticed uh, on the hearth a, a photo of the man and his wife at their wedding. It was their wedding picture. And the little girl, uh, she, she took her sister, and she pointed at that picture, and she says, see, that's how it's supposed to be. That's how it's supposed to be. We live, friends, in a world where there's wreckage all over the place when it comes to human relationships. There is discord. There is uh, division all over the place. Um, and Paul is reminding us and telling us that there's a way that it ought to be. And the way that it ought to be is described by or achieved by the gospel, that in Jesus Christ, everything that divides us, ethnicity, rank, uh, gender, economic class, all the things that divide us. You talk about racial discord. All those things are overcome. All that division is done away with in the gospel. The, the, the differences aren't eradicated. We, we, we remain right what we are ethnically and, 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 and gender-wise and, and according to our social rank. But though those things are the are ultimate defining distinctions in the world, they are secondary distinctions in the kingdom of God. They, they, they fade to the background in light of this glorious new reality. We're brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters. And the gospel is the only thing in this world that is able to provide that sort of, of kinship. There's a, there's, a, there's a teaching sweeping through our world today that, that, that tells people that the world is fundamentally divided. Humanity is fundamentally divided between um, the oppressed and the oppressors, between the, the, uh, the marginalized and, and victimized and the dominant and the perpetrators. And, and, that, and that divide is ultimate. It can't be fixed. Well, that's completely contrary to the gospel. The gospel says, no, it absolutely can be fixed. That Jesus, in Jesus Christ, things that are divided can be made one, can be made whole. There can be uh, unity and family and kinship between people who have been ripped apart by sin. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That when we come to Jesus Christ, we get a family, brothers and sisters. And it does not matter all the things of rank, all the things that divide socially fall to the wayside in that sense. I hope you've had the experience of traveling and, and maybe traveling um, uh, overseas to another country. I remember um, the first time I went to, uh, to Haiti with Eric Hausler, Pastor Eric Hausler, and uh, I, I just seeing poverty such as I could, I'd never imagined. And, and I remember up in the Central Plateau, we went and we visited some huts, and uh, we went to a lady, a, a child was sick, and so we entered this, this utter shack. The, the, my garage would be ten times Ten times better living facility than this than this shack. Uh, it's it's a little hut, and and a dirt floor, single room, and a mother is there with a sick child, and she's as impoverished as possible, little to no education, doesn't know my language, but as Eric um, being able to speak Creole was as he, as he was talking with her about the things of God, and he would fill me in what they're talking about. And I stood there and watched. I just saw the, 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 the joy in her face and the light in her eyes and, her, and, her, and the peace that she had, her faith in God. And, and it just struck me, this is my sister. 
This is my precious sister in Christ. It is a holy and priceless thing to be able to say that. That, that no matter where you meet a brother or sister in Christ, no matter, no matter how different you are in the way that the world counts differences, there is a fundamental unity that exists by virtue of your common faith in Christ and, and your, your kinship in the family of God. And it is an inestimable privilege to belong to the family of God. There's nothing greater than to have a family of brothers and sisters. I, I think we take that for granted. I think we forget it. I know I do. And I just see people, and I can easily see people the way that the world sees people. And I forget that, that these are blood-bought siblings. And we share not only this life together, but we share all the riches of Christ together, and we will, we will share eternity together. And this is the message that we have for this, this lost, bifurcated, alienated world. Come and find your true heavenly father. Come and find a whole new family. Come and discover how it's supposed to be. That's what the church should be standing as a testimony in the, in the world. And that's what we should be calling people to. Come, and, come and, and gain a new family bound by ties more precious than blood. Rejoice in the family, friends, that God has given to you. I count it an a, a, a inestimable privilege to belong to the church. The family of God. And finally, we get a new destiny. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So if you're Christ, then you're an heir. There's a vast, vast inheritance promised to you. According to the promise. Well, what promise? Well, Paul is obviously referring to the promise given to Abraham. Uh, and God gave Abraham many promises. I will be a God to you. I will be your, very, uh, your shield and your very great re reward. God promises himself to Abraham. God says to Abraham, I will give you this land, signifying, pointing towards a, uh, a, a spiritual land, or, or the better, maybe um, the eternal inheritance of a new heaven and a new earth. That's what Abraham was looking for. That's how he understood it. All these things God gives to his children. To be a Christian is to be fabulously wealthy. Jeff Bezos, it's reported, the founder of Amazon, is worth uh, $182 billion, the wealthiest man in the world. Bill Gates, uh, worth about $118 billion. Elon Musk, $105 billion. Uh, those men combined are pitiless paupers compared to what you have, your riches, in Christ Jesus. You have an inheritance that is so vastly beyond the wealth of this world that it is simply impossible to place a dollar value to it. What dollar value would you give? to being a son of God, the status of a son of God. What dollar value would you, would you place on having God himself as your great reward? Uh, what dollar value would you place on Jesus Christ, the son of God, dying on a cross for you, bearing your sin, providing you with his righteousness so that you could be reconciled to your father? What monetary value will you put on that, having all your sins forgiven, freely justified by grace and through faith, thoroughly being sanctified by his Holy Spirit, one day miraculously glorified by the power of God. What value are you going to put on that? What's it worth? What does the world have 
that can compare to the sheer overwhelming worth of one day stepping into the presence of Jesus Christ with a glorified body, dwelling with God forever in a new heaven and a new earth. What does the world have that can compare to that? There's nothing. You are, you are vastly wealthy in Jesus Christ. So do you see what a wonderful thing it is to be a Christian? Because in Christ, you are, you are given this glorious status. You were once a rebel and, a, and, and you still sin. And yet your status is not rebel and sinner. Your status is son of God. A, a beloved son with all the privileges and, and all the honor and the glory and, uh, of that title. You are a child of God. You have been given a new family where once there had only been division and discord. You have, um, you've received what you needed more than anything else. You've received the embrace of your heavenly father. Friends, Jesus Christ died on a cross so you could say, Abba, Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And having God as your Father and Jesus as your Savior means that you are the wealthiest and most blessed people in all the world. And it's all by grace and it's all through faith and it's all because of Jesus. And I just ask you this morning, do you know this to be true about yourself? Young people, is this true for you? Can you say this? I know this Jesus. I believe in this Jesus. I belong to this Jesus. And in Jesus, I'm a son of God, a child of God. Maybe you've been in church all your life. But do you know this to be true of you? And if so, then, then latch hold of it. Cling to this truth like a little kitten clinging to a piece of driftwood in the middle of the ocean with everything you have. I'm a child of God. Take that reality to every anxiety in your heart, every problem you face, every circumstance that is hard and confusing and you don't know what to do with. Take that reality. By, in Jesus Christ, I am a child of God, a son of God. And all that God promises to his children is mine. Right now, right today. And nothing can separate me from this glorious status. And I have a family all around me who know me and love me. I'm inestimably blessed. I have a future, a destiny in Jesus Christ. Let's lay hold, friends, of our privileges as Christians. It's a marvelous, marvelous thing to be a Christian. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, we forget, but I thank you that you remind us. Lord, I pray that our status as children of God, sons of God, heirs according to the promise would, Lord, just impact how we live, that our fears would melt away. What can harm the children of God? I pray, Lord, that we would have a sense of how incredibly privileged we are. As a free gift of grace, why should we be counted so blessed. Angels envy us. And we live, Lord, uh, we, we belong to this world. Uh, there's no reason that you should save us and not others. And yet you have. For so many of us, Lord, you've given us Christian homes. We heard the gospel from our youth. Others, Lord, we've heard the gospel later in life and you gave us the ability to believe it. And Father, we thank you for all that that gospel brings. We thank you that we live now in this new age, now that faith has come, now that Jesus has come. And Lord, I pray that we would be bold then in this day 
bold in our faith, deep in our assurance, full of joy, ripe with peace. For Lord, we are the children of God. And there's nothing greater. So Lord, may the peace and the grace of our Father be on us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing together a great hymn. With Jesus my Savior, I am a child of the King. Let's stand and give thanks to God.
now as you go into the week that your heavenly Father has ordained for you, uh, go with the confidence as the sons of God. Receive the blessings that belong to the children of God. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God your Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you, abide with you, until Christ come again. Amen.